You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas. The courage to invent the future. He gave his word. He gave his word to the railroad. It's his word. That ain't what counts. It's who you give it to. And this, my friend is a beautiful line from a iconic and iconic Western American film, Western being the genre, uh, called The Wild Bunch. Today on Invent the Future, we'll be discussing uh, Western films and their ahistoricity to the actual history of, you know, both American culture as well as the portrayals of Mexico in these films. Um <laughs> So if you didn't already know, uh, this is Invent the Future, a Marxist-Leninist podcast where we discuss history, theory, culture, and organizing. Uh, today, I am your host, Alex. And who else do we got with us today? Uh, hey, this is Alex. <laughs> and this is Ethan. Sweet. So... Uh, like I said, we'll be talking about a couple of films. So Ethan and I watched uh, a few films each, and then Ilex is going to be our historian today. So we'll start off with a couple discussions about, you know, some trends and some probably problematic things <laughs> that we saw in these films. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Ethan and I both watched a couple of Western films. And Ilex obviously is going to be our historian to dispel a lot of the problematic and inaccurate portrayals. Um, I'll say first off that I watched The Wild Bunch as well as uh, The Magnificent Seven. What films did you watch? I watched A Fistful of Dollars, um, Stagecoach, and The Shadow Riders. Ooh, those all sound very ominous. <laughs> <laughs> you just just wait. Obviously, we're going to be going into kind of some portrayals around Mexico. I'll just do a little synopsis about the two films that I watched. Um, I'll start with the less aggressively problematic film, which was uh, Magnificent Seven. It surrounds a, a basically a troop of kind of what you would consider the quintessential gunslinger, like cowboy type of transient dudes who kind of go from town to town, living their own lives and finding jobs and money where they can get it and kind of being mercenaries in a sense. Um, this one guy meets a couple of Mexican men who have come to look for help in a nearby Western village or town where uh, they see a couple of these gunslingers basically being hot shots and they're like, hey, help, help. Like our village has been, you know, being tormented by uh, a couple of Mexican bandits who uh, basically steal our crops and our resources like monthly or whatever, like help us. So basically these this Magnificent Seven group bands together to help this uh, small poor Mexican village 
And on the way there, they find love. <laughs> One of the characters does. But uh, what I noticed about this film is that it certainly portrayed the Mexicans in an infantilizing light where they weren't completely like derogatory in the terms where they portray them as bad people. They more portray them as like, oh, these sweet little people don't know what they're doing. And so it had the white savior mentality for this film. So we can go into more into that later. The other film, however, was very, very problematic. Uh, this is the film where I was like, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, what the fuck is this genre? <laughs> like, seriously, like the whole time I was just like, how how is it possible that I'm sitting through two and a half hours of this shit and I'm still not sure what the the point is? This one is, Magn- is Wild Bunch? Yeah, the Wild Bunch, okay. which... Boy, I'll tell you, I had a wild bunch of moments <laughs> watching this shit. Uh, so this one, the storyline of this one is very, very convoluted oh <laughs> to the point where I'm just like, even at the end of the film, I was like, I'm not sure what the point of that film was. It felt almost non-narrative, which hats off to you, cowboys, for <laughs> trying to shake up narrative, I guess. Uh, but essentially... Um, in the simplest way possible, there is, <laughs> this is so confusing, there's a group of like bandits uh, that are badasses, but they're also very uh, talented uh, outlaws with the gun. They have studied the blade, but the gun. Um, and they basically make a living through doing big jobs, basically, like st- stealing stuff from cities or towns and then selling them off to like other people or whatever. So they're trying to do a really big last job to set themselves up for retirement, basically, because they're getting old. The big job that they're doing is to help this de facto general in kind of like revolutionary Mexico, uh, who is a very bad person and they portray as basically authoritarian and kind of like probably how America would portray like some sort of Fidel or something. Oh boy. Like I got some vibes from that, uh, who happens to be a really shitty person. <laughs> and at the same time, there's a group of bounty hunters trying to capture the bandits. So through this whole film, it's just like fight after fight and a lot of racism uh, towards the Mexican people. They're portrayed as like very promiscuous, loose with values You get a lot of like throwing around of terms of not endearment. Uh, They're kind of portrayed as like abusing alcohol the time, like not really understanding how to use weapons. Like that's their job to get weapons for this general in his village. And apparently they don't know how to use them. So they're shown as really destructive and like flippant. And yeah, just so much happens and it will be a delight to talk about more of it because they had some very, very fucked up portrayals of women in this film. Mm. Uh, Especially women of color, unfortunately, were very objectified in this film. And a lot of like just weird moments where like they would laugh. Like the whole group would just go on a laughing spree for no reason. So (laughs) those were the two, (laughs) those were the four and a half hours of my life. Oh God. Four? 
I think Wild Bunch Wild, is really long. Yeah. yeah, Wild Bunch is two and a half hours, and then Magnificent Seven was two hours. Oh yes, yeah. I just forget how long was, these mo- these uh, movies are. So, <laughs> dude, like I would think that they weren't that long, and then I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, mine were uh, like hour and a half each. So Stagecoach was even shorter, but yeah. So yeah, so the ones I saw, so Stagecoach is like considered one of the classics of, uh, so it's it's weird when um, we say like, oh, it's Western films. We're not talking about Western as in like, you know, the capitalist US or Europe or whatever. It's the cowboy shit, uh, like that, that stuff. Um, but Stagecoach is considered one of the um, classics of the Western genre, and it's basically just about a bunch of people on a stagecoach, which is like, if you're not familiar, it's like a wagon, but it's kind of like a bus, and people are using it to get places. Um, and then they get attacked by the native folks in the area, and like the whole thing is about uh, John Wayne like helping the stagecoach fight off the Apaches. And uh, very heroic, and yeah, that shit sucked. Then I watched A Fistful of Dollars, which is interesting because that is a that is the first example of what they call spaghetti westerns, which were um, in like the sixties and seventies. A bunch of uh, Italian filmmakers who really liked American westerns decided to make a bunch of them, uh, and. Uh, a Fistful of Dollars is the first in like a trilogy of famous ones. It's A Fistful of Dollars and then A Few Dollars More. And then the third in that trilogy is um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And these were uh, how Clint Eastwood became famous as because uh, he plays the same character in all three of them, The Man With No Name. The Fistful of Dollars is about this man with no name. He comes to uh, this little border town. I think it was in Mexico, but it was just like kind of right on the border, so so there's not really any laws because no one knows who's in charge there except, uh, you know, the frontier, frontier justice. And, it's, and there are these three Mexican brothers that are like, basically local mafia that control this town but they're also up against the this like white sheriff who is in town and so this uh, man with no name comes in and decides to like play them off each other to make some money but then he also does like he also helps rescue like this woman it's it's all it's all very strange um and then i also watched 1982's the shadow riders starring tom Selleck and sam elliott and this movie was bananas it's uh two brothers fought in the civil war one of them fought for the confederates and one fought for the union and they both come back home at the same time and found out that their home has been raided by band of like former confederates who kidnap a bunch of uh horses and women because they are looking for uh, nice white ladies to sell to the Mexican slavers so that they can get a bunch of money to buy weapons and supplies to basically start another uh, civil war, the South will rise again, that kind of thing. This movie was insane. Yeah, so that's uh, those are the ones I watched. So I, uh, yeah, I will be very interested to see how. Yeah, it was a big oof. Um, the whole time I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, so... Gosh, uh, these films are interesting. So I feel like we should just talk about our assessment of the Western as a genre in general at first. Um, (laughs) It is baffling. Like, I literally cannot put words to the kind of fiction that they are weaving into these films. 
the kind of like just immersive fan fiction of settler colonialism and rugged individualism and just like those images are so deeply ingrained into our culture it's wild to stop watch them and realize just how outlandish they are and even more outlandishly is that people don't realize how fictionalized these films are and do not really reflect how history was at that time (laughs) I feel the same way. Like the whole genre is, yeah, like you said, is uh, fan fiction basically about manifest destiny and settler colonialism and just how the United States formed after the Civil War and everything that happened with that. And 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 it's yeah, these are like really bizarre understandings of like masculinity really bizarre understandings of uh property and like individualism and all of this just yeah all of this these 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 movies are insane like and it makes sense how integral they are to the american mythology to me like to me i was like okay yeah i like i grew up and like many people my age. I don't know if they still do this. Hopefully not in like society, but like growing up. Yeah, it was, you know, cowboys and Indians. That was a whole thing. And it wasn't really anything I thought about. It was just like, oh, yeah, no, back in back in the day, that was just how things how things work. So that's just how society was. And uh, and there were these these like very independent and capable guys who just went from town to town. And 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 yeah, and, and it's and it completely obscures through just a completely false narrative like how like western expansion happened how the western united states became a thing right and the seizure of lands of the people who had lived there before yeah expansion like especially with mexico like it's just wild how they portrayed them as always being either corrupt or completely helpless like in the two films I watched um, and they always showed like internal fights between the Mexican villages as if like they could never get along. And then it like they even kind of aligned them within the indigenous communities within that film, like bunching them all together as like just a big other, which yeah, there, it, it was very interesting to watch because there was one part in the film where the Mexican guy in this group of bandits on the Wild Bunch took them to basically his home village and they ended up staying just outside of it. And I guess they knew the local indigenous community there that snuck up on them to kind of do like a deal with them. And they they said something like, oh, How'd they sneak up on us? Who didn't know? Who wasn't on duty? Ah, if they would only get a good leader, this country would be burned down or something like that. And it was just like, (laughs) holy shit. Oh my God. Like they weave in white guilt, but in a superiority complex in these films. And what I took away was that a lot of it is justification and self-amelioration, basically, if that makes sense. Mm. So I was going to, um, oh my goodness, I have so many thoughts going around that I'm like trying to pick one Do to it. think of, but for, I guess to start off with, 
when we talk about like specifically your film the wild bunches or wild bunch right alex wild <laughs> wild bunches wild of oats, of oats. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah wild bunch so with the wild bunch this is taking place during the mexican revolution in which we have um specifically at the border you have pancho villa then you have um the actual mexican federation army trying to rein in the uh, rebellions at the border because the Mexican Revolution at the end of the day was taken up upon because of U.S. imperialism and the United and Mexico, specifically the president at the time, um, President Profirio Diaz. He didn't handle well and he didn't look out for his citizens at all, specifically those that were working in the fields. His only main objective was to make a huge profit and to rise up Mexico from how it was seen, which is from its indigenous background. So with this kind of film, it's trying to show like the United States is continually almost like it doesn't have this history of imperialism. It doesn't have this kind of weird connection to Mexico. It's just these individuals just randomly hop upon it and are interacting with this Mexican village, which is, uh, it's like, it's weird because you get these stereotypes where it's just, and we still see it today in which certain towns or villages in Mexico are just ransacked by crime, people not caring, infidelity and stuff like that. Um, You can see this with the war on drugs. You can see this now with um, Mm -hmm. the Mexican Revolution because it's because the Mexican Revolution caused a lot of death and a lot of I mean, not a lot of violence. Like it wasn't it wasn't criminal. It was people trying to gain back their rights. But with under the United States's watch, it's like, eek, uh, maybe we shouldn't have people, especially workers and peasants and um, indigenous people trying to gain back any kind of control. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I totally noticed how in that film they tried to extract the United States imperialism from the issues of those Mexican villages by making it seem like a purely internal issue of like a bad leader with no tie to external uh, pressures or corruption. They really try to show that like they just are bad at leading government. They're just bad at getting their shit together. They're just like dumb, immoral people. Um, And it's funny because uh, with that like de facto general guy, like they had like a German guy there that like was helping them get military uh, machinery and weapons and stuff like that. But they never really discussed any of that U.S. tie. And it did seem like they were trying to really reinforce that internal struggle as kind of something that the U.S. has no issue to to be involved or had never contributed to or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I think with shaping the village as drunkards and uh, violent and careless, like it dehumanizes them to justify why like the bandits were kind of like chaotic neutral, to be honest, like they would just go wherever the money and the job would go and they would kill their own kind. And, you know, it, it didn't really matter. Like, uh, the Mexican guy in the bandit group 
was trying to get weapons for a small village who was in opposition to that general and just like such wild stuff. One of the like, like baffling portrayals, I just have to get into it, of Mexican women were that they were like loose Mm -hmm. um, and they were sexually objectified and they were dehumanized. Like there's this scene in this film where the Mexican bandit sees a woman that he used to be lovers with or whatever. And she's like, no, like, I'm not with you anymore. Um, I'm with the general now. <laughs> the general <laughs> makes me think of that. <laughs> Whatever. But anyways, yeah, she's like, no, I'm I'm with the general now. So he's like trying to hold on to her, like asking her, like, why? What the fuck? Um, and his other bandit comrades basically have to like stop him. And so the woman goes up to the general and basically starts like kissing him and stuff. And this bandit guy gets so jealous that he shoots her just for not being with him and the general's like guards are like what the fuck because they thought he was trying to kill the general and he's like no 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 i uh i i was uh shooting her because you know she she left me and then they're like they just start laughing like oh (laughs) that 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 makes sense okay you're good and like it just shows a total disregard for these women's life and I just thought that was so stark because none of the white women were really dehumanized or sexualized to that degree and I think that visual imagery has taught a lot about intersections of race and gender when it comes to patriarchal attitudes Mm. yeah definitely and I was thinking also throughout these films I know that Within the United States and honestly everywhere else, obviously we use art to teach history. We teach um, the past and stuff like that. And that's not an inherently bad thing. That's a very important thing to use. However, within the United States, art has been used to, especially film and movies, has been used to kind of show the audience their memories of the past and their kind of ancestors' memories of the past. And this kind of... Westerns almost seem similar to Vietnam War films to me, almost in the sense of as you progress further away from the events of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and you progress further from this time of the West and um, the continued, uh, like, from cause of the Homestead Act and stuff like that, um, you see that the people are like, okay, well, how can I tie this into the day-to-day life I'm seeing? And during the 50s and 60s, we're seeing a mass, mass deportation. So this um, was called the Operation Wetback. Great name, first off. I love the United States. So during... I want to die. Yeah. So um, during Operation Wetback, um, you see about 1.3 million people grabbed from urban places and some rural areas, mostly urban settings, um, usually within California, um, mostly Southern California. And then you see it in Arizona and states along the border. Um, it was implement- implemented in June of 1954 by the U.S. Eternity General Herbert Brown- Brownell. I don't know how to say names like that brownwell or something brownell um but anyway he uh, who cares yeah who cares he, he needs yeah i was gonna head. say who gives he's, a shit he's the worst anyway but what 
Operation Wetback does and how it further shows the kind of hands that Border Patrol will further on have is it's going to grab people from urban settings and then just essentially dump them, even though I hate that kind of verb of using, but essentially dump them into Mexico, usually not where they were originally from, but just centers of taking them um, so that they're out out of the United States. Operation Wetback came out of the wake of the Brocero program um, in which young men, um, few families, but they were mostly having young men come in and do labor for the United States during World War II. And then they started to see that these young men would leave, but some families and some people would try to emigrate to the United States in order to kind of, or immigrate, sorry, immigrate to the United States in order to Um, for jobs, work, and kind of deal with the aftermath of the war as just even family stuff as well. But um, it's very interesting in which these kinds of films are tying into that kind of Operation Wetback is because they're trying to comprehend, okay, well, these people are actually criminals. They're actually natural. They're naturally like that. This is where we see the racialization of Mexican people and then later, Latin American people, in which, me- like Mexicans are criminals. They are this. They are. They don't deserve to be in the United States. They need to go back to where they come from, quote unquote. So yeah, that's what I'm kind of noticing with that film as well is that it's trying to deal with that kind of history of these kind of people that are just criminals they don't know what they're doing they don't belong here and then also the kind of infidelity which we can go into later but kind of trying to comprehend how we can round up a bunch of people and take them away from where they were living and try to justify it I feel like that's a really good assessment for sure because of what you said that um Art and and life go hand in hand. And I feel like on a different pod, uh, maybe there was a discussion about the writing of history as an act to, oh gosh, how was it phrased? Basically to shade the way that folks understand what has happened and it becomes integrated into just their understanding because it's quote unquote fact. But the issue is that Facts are not always portrayed in the most savory uh, interpretation. And so people who watch media that are loosely based on a, a time period, which we all know is mostly false, start to associate everything within that film because there's like an inkling of a fact to be the true portrayal of what things actually were like and how they happened. And so that can get really dangerous with these portrayals of uh, Mexican individuals who are basically justified as you said, criminals, drunkards, promiscuous, like basically subhuman. And so with the amount of death shown on the film, the attitude towards that being very flippant, like, oh, it's just another death. Like that really reinforces that they're kind of like vermin to just be taken care of. Um, And an interesting thing is juxtaposing like the Mexican villages with the American town. Like they started out with the American town having people at church 
and talking about temperance uh, and abstinence and stuff like that. So it was really interesting to have that be the base by which we understand the Western world compared to the Mexicans. Um, And I think that was very intentional. Um, And the uh, one woman in the beginning that was basically being harassed by the bandits uh, was completely covered, um, harassed nonetheless, but never overtly sexualized. And I noticed that the only breasts shown in the film were always of Mexican women, um, a way to literally objectify these people as deserving of this treatment and dehumanization. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of ties in with what I mentioned briefly with uh, the Shadow Riders, because the entire plot is like, oh, God, we have to rescue all of our like pure uh, American white women before they get um, sold to these Mexican slavers. And like at a couple times, there's like there's some one of the people kidnapped is like a teenage girl and they're like, oh, you're going to do great down in Mexico and that kind of stuff. And like this film is from 1982, um, which is just just about Reagan's America almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the exotic, dangerous, like animal sexuality of the people down. Oh, they're savages down there. Like you're going to they're going to tear you apart. It's going to be horrific. Um and and that's the whole thing looming like the, that the whole plot functions on that looming threat of like oh god it'd be better for them to just get killed instead of uh get sold down there mm. yeah there was a lot of like exoticism and othering going on when they showed the cultures uh as kind of like what would that be called like when you're basically making a spectacle out of it and it's becoming some sort of like tokenized enjoyment to to watch the culture whenever they did portray it and interestingly like i saw this a lot with the other film the um magnificent seven because they were showing more of that white savior complex where the white dudes go in and help this poor village from getting ransacked or whatever and they did show like a lot of the them doing their ceremonial dances and like their food and stuff like that. But it did feel very, very much like a spectacle and like they were othering and objectifying um, and kind of like novel, like a novelty, uh, which I feel like that says a lot about the good kind of Mexicans that America wants, uh, where they want the novelty of Mexico, but they don't want those bad ones, you know, the, the druggies, the, the vagrants or whatever. Uh, so it had a lot of the infantilization where uh, these these poor Mexican people don't know what they're doing. And so us white people have to go in and teach them how to use guns, hmm. bring them guns, teach them how to use guns, teach them how to stand up for themselves. They literally talked about the whole village being cowards uh, because they wouldn't stand up to the people that would ransack them. Um, and so, like, I feel like these two films are, uh, represent the two kind of lines that America has taken and could take on minority cultures, where it's either like they're a bunch of dehumanized shitheads that don't deserve our help, or they're kind of like a, uh, people that are kind of like, oh, God, they're kind of like people who we provide a crutch for. 
we are the ones that give them what they need and aren't we good people for helping them out like there was a lot of that kind of feeling mm. where they were the the ones giving them the resources the americans were the ones taking care of them and making sure that they could continue to exist so i feel like these two films were very representative of those behaviors that we do see they they'll help the poor minorities as long as they they play the game they want we could also talk about how just the idea of the cowboy mm. as a person mm. and an archetype is very like inaccurate too because i noticed that they had like this idea where the cowboy was a separate entity from people who work on like farms and cattlery and stuff mm -hmm. which is wild to me like they conceptualize the cowboy as like some kind of outlaw gunslinger like mercenary type where correct me if i'm wrong and maybe you can go into this ilix the original cowboys were like vacuros where mm. they were like cattle ranchers right yeah, so vaqueros are pretty much, uh, yeah, they're the first cowboys, literally the translation from it, because vaca is cow, so you have cowboys, and they come around because of the colonization of Mexico, and well, I mean, not, I mean, Mexico is a seller state, but you, you know, the kind of area, what is now modern day Mexico, um, because the Spanish, Spanish, specifically Cortez and the other conquistadors, they all loved meat and they loved cows and they saw potential in the land of what is now Mexico. And they were like, we're going to just have a bunch of cows and we're going to have a huge kind of cow farms and we're going to kind of work the environment that way, which as we've seen, it's not very good cows take up a lot of land and a lot of resources a lot of grass and stuff like that but anyway so you see the kind of development of the first cowboy from mexico because they are the first ones to kind of introduce cows into the um the the americas and try to learn and how to herd different livestock throughout the land because it's it's pre it, previously there wasn't a lot like there wasn't large animals like that like cows and stuff like that usually most indigenous people i would include also my where my family's from is that you only had like a vegetarian and a ve or a vegan diet i should say so it's very interesting that with cows being introduced you have this formation or the synchronization of me into indigenous culture so yeah that's pretty much kind of the forming of the cowboy is a mixture of not only just the work of the land of colonization but you also have who's working who's going to become a cowboy it's usually going to be indigenous mexicans and mestizo mexicans as well merely because they will know how the land is operating and also how to work it and they're mostly the ones that are in a lower class Right. And that's super interesting that this very specific archetype that is so removed from the original quote unquote cowboy exists and is so iconic in American culture because it did come from something that looks completely different from how we see it now and what we conceptualize as a cowboy. And it also was more tied to, like you said, work and and like lower class and 
indigenous Mexicans. So I almost wonder if that says something about America's taking of identities and forming it into something that becomes a myth, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's just wild because in these films, whenever the Mexicans are portrayed, they aren't portrayed in the same skill and like autonomy as these cowboys. When in reality, it was probably the opposite because they were the ones working with the cattle and and had acclimated to being very proficient in subsisting through like those hardships. So hmm. it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. And like with the cowboy kind of identity and kind of iconography, you have this idea that it's just this lone person, this lone man. I don't even, not even a person, just a man. Oh, I said not even a person, yeah. a man. <laughs> I meant. That's valid. <laughs> I meant. So, wow. I, okay, this lone man who does everything on his own, he's reliant on him himself only. And if he's in a group, his individuality is still abstaining. Like even with like the formation of like spaghetti westerners and or westerns and how they have like the anti-hero forming and stuff like that he's still an individual he's a complicated person but he still has that he's still being personified and he still has kind of this his own thing you know well as all the characters that are surrounding him is all dependent on his characterization and him building himself up and it's so interesting because I feel like why this genre is so important to the United States particularly is because it has always since its formation been about how can I sustain only myself and how do I only rely on myself and not anything with the community. And when you see a setting of a community, like as we see with these uh, Mexican villages, or they're probably mostly hijos, which are um, communal lands, which a community shares, obviously, uh, mostly indigenous, mestizo people of lower class um, peasant people will be sharing um, to kind of cultivate different crops and whatever and share the profits on that. But anyway, so it's interesting because these cowboys and the United States version of a cowboy are going to be shown as I cultivated this land. This land is mine and stuff like that. Even though the whole backing of in order for those cowboys to get land and to be able to roam is through massacre and genocide and through kind of this process of racializing not only native American people Mexican people that are now being synchronized to indigenous people because of their background. So you have this weird dynamic where it's just like, bro, you still, you're not an individual. You have relied on a history of uh, pretty much a government in the state taking on the violence and then you being able to roam freely. And then you still getting to act out on that violence, but you think you're just an individual outside of it. Right. And I think... Oh, it's so interesting that those cowboys are shown as the individuals who basically just exist through their gun. I feel like that says so much about the culture that they are not culpable because law doesn't exist. The only exist 
The only law that exists is surviving. It's very gross. Yeah, I mean, like, the more that I think about it and the more we've been talking about it, the more convinced I am that, like, you can kind of read all of American culture from these fucking movies and the ideas contained within them. Like... Yeah, there is the there is the idea of the the individualism. There's the idea of the like the outsourcing of the massive structural violence to the state, and like and there is the whole glorification of settling and working the land and having your own property and black and white morality that stems from like individual property rights and like defending your claim on this land and like masculinity like it's just endless I feel like yeah I just the more I think about it, I'm just like fuck it's all it's all there yeah uh for the masculinity it's really interesting um no surprise but uh, neither of the films that I watched passed the Bechdel test, but um, uh, the the portrayal of like the cowboys like adherence to personal values is so interesting because they're shown as kind of like uh, upstanding, like they never go back on their values, but their values are not tied to like any others or any intergroup dynamics and so I think that really is illustrative of kind of libertarianism and that idea of like as long as I stick to my values I'm a good person like I can exist on my terms through my gun and any person who dies is basically collateral as long as I have mine in the end and that really showed up in both of these films where deaths just happen and they just happen like no big deal, basically. And it kind of follows that idea that everyone gets their place in the end, like just world um, beliefs, kind of. Um, and you can really see how that integrated into the psyches of uh, many Americans, especially if they do believe that these are portrayals of how things actually existed. So they feel like the land was built off of these values. And so we shall uphold them. And they've always been like that. Okay, y'all, this is kind of a weird take, but I'm just going to go on this road because I don't know if it will work in the end, but like... Do it. Let's just do it. Okay, so... Do it, dog. I know all my U.S. historian weirdos out there are going to yell at me because of how I'm going to pronounce this, but I apologize. I also don't care. It's a yeoman farmer. So in the east of... I know this is kind of getting weird, but I have a point. So in the east of the United States, you have... As the United States is forming, you're trying to figure out, hey, what, who makes a U.S. citizen? Who gets to call themselves a citizen within the, this great country that's beginning to form? <laughs> and usually that is from someone who owns land, who is self-sufficient, who is upper, upper class. Obviously, if you own land, you're pretty well off. Who's able to take care of things and his family and stuff like it, that. So the yeoman farmer, obviously, that's what like Andrew Jackson was just like, oh, man, that's that's it. That's my boy. So when even before that, Thomas Jefferson, like oh, yeah. his whole thing was like, this is my <laughs> idealized citizen is this like dude who lives on a farm and like works in his garden and then is like a poet scholar mm -hmm. 
but the farm, like the f- individual operating a farm, yeah, that was, yeah, that's from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that might actually be the person I'm talking about. I'm sorry, I don't know these dead white men. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who needs to? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know. Anyway, because of this foundation with that we're starting to build in the United States. Obviously, that's building as we move towards the West, obviously, with what Ethan was talking about, the Manifest Destiny, and then you get the Homestead Act um, of 1862, which pretty much says that, hey, if you are on good standings as a citizen, you're able to kind of own land uh, that's granted to you. I think it was 160 acres. I could be wrong um, by the United States government. So with that kind of idea, oh, great, I can be my own self-sufficient person. My family can live here and stuff like that. But whose land was it previously? Obviously, we know that is the Native American, the indigenous people that was back there, as well as um, even though this isn't the land that was owned by, but different people had vice royalties to that land. Spanish people specifically um, had I mean, fuck them. I don't care. They lost their land, too. But like certain people had land as well that was there that was taken by the United States. So with the constant grabbing of land, land has been tethered to citizenship. And even though it's kind of becoming obscure now, these Western films kind of show that it's going to continue to be so in which we see kind of this like. Mexican people don't deserve and indigenous people don't deserve kind of the land that they share. They're kind of almost like flimsy with it and they don't utilize it to the potential it has. While as these cowboys know how to work it and they become the new kind of, I don't know, the new person, the new founders of the area, like almost kind of naturalizing them to the space. While as indigenous people and Mexican people, I and also... It's just Mexican people don't have that kind of tie to it anymore. They're seen as the past. So then they become infantilized, become seen as lazy and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. That was my take. (laughs) No, I mean, that's super interesting because that's getting into ideas of kind of fatalistic concepts of who deserves what based on very constricted, restricted views of who someone should be. And I would argue that that has continued into many other areas of life and views of poverty, views of education, access to resources. It's not that the people who I'm trying to phrase this, it's as if they see the people who do get access to these resources didn't get it through privilege or through, you know, like stealing it uh, generationally from the people who were born on the land or whatever. It's they conceptualize it as they deserve it because they are smart enough. They are in some cases God chose them, you know, like they have the God given right to this land and these resources. Um, other times it's that they were motivated and they worked hard enough for it, like that uh, Protestant like work ethic, like everyone has a equal say into this uh, land, these resources. But if you don't do it right, then you don't deserve it. And so I think that kind of idea has lent its way throughout kind of American history to where if you don't fit 
the box of X, Y, and Z, then you don't deserve it or you aren't adequately going to utilize it. And you see these kind of like attitudes towards people who become homeless, people who don't get good education and so they can't go on to university. Um, Even like with standardized testing, like it doesn't even cross their mind that there is any inequity uh, with testing. So Hmm. I'd say it makes sense. Well, yeah. And like and even for the cowboys who don't own land, who are just kind of these these vagrants who just come into town and solve people's problems and and that sort of thing. Like even though they don't necessarily own the land, like they're better at riding a horse and they're better at surviving in the um, in the wild than anybody else. And there is still a connection to the land that they have, even if they don't necessarily like the character doesn't necessarily own it. And so, yeah, there is this archetypal attitude of how to be a good American with this moral code, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to have grit. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, and one thing uh, I know we're just kind of just randomly going all over the place here and that's fine. But like when you were saying about the masculinity a few minutes ago, promoting a specific idea of that one thing, one example I wanted to give from uh, the Shadow Riders was so the guy who was a Confederate, he leaves and everyone thinks he's been like his family in his town thinks he's been dead because they heard that he had gotten killed for some reason. I don't remember the details. Who gives a shit? Um, but. <laughs> And so he was engaged to this one woman who was in the town, but he's gone for years and uh, he comes back into the town and he meets this one rich guy and they're, they're talking and this rich guy's like, oh yeah, I'm uh, engaged to be married. And <laughs> Sam Elliott, the Confederate guy, he's like, oh, well, like to who? And he says the name of the woman that he that Sam Elliott was engaged to and for so long he's just like he's so upset that like oh she she didn't wait for me she didn't wait for me and I was like she thought you were dead man like what's going on and then like they finally do meet up because she was one of the people who was captured and he's like why didn't you wait for me she's like I thought you were dead motherfucker like (laughs) why why the hell would I wait up for you but then in the end it's like they get back together because she was supposed to be with him and now that he's back like they can just pick up where they left off like that and that was a good thing like it was it was it was bad that she didn't that she didn't wait for him and like they were always meant to be together and just like just completely insane jesus yeah like i've noticed that a lot of these westerns are very fatalistic Mm. it's like you're bound to this fate and that's it like tough you're born this way you stay this way and this is your fate and you stick to it and you have grit about it and the whole masculinity thing is so wild because i just realized like These two films that I watched are about groups of gunslingers, basically, who work together. And yet they still portray this idea of individualism and like they could subsist and survive on their own. And yet there's that weird juxtaposition because inherently they're working together Hmm. in like a de facto community, in a sense. Um, But just to do crimes and guns and shit uh (laughs) also i got some like homoerotic vibes from Mm. (laughs) the magnificent seven uh and i'm just like what are these films like there are a lot of things where like the guys will like get basically circle jerk Mm. (laughs) 
I mean, Sorry. Well, and, and that's, and, and like with what we were saying about uh, the Western as just sort of the archetypal American thing, like that includes the just incredible, like repressed homoerotic feeling of American masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like the, a bunch of guys, like you're, we're all hanging around the campfire and it's like, we're <laughs> sipping whiskey and admiring each other's bodies and stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, like, no. <laughs> no, but just, it's just like, yeah, just it's guys being dudes. But yeah, no, I mean, that's, I'm sure you could do a whole thing Sitting, on the. What was that like, that vine, like two guys in a hot tub, yeah, five feet guys, apart? Because they're, they're not gay. Yeah, exactly. That's um, how it is. Yeah, exactly. Two guys sitting around a campfire, five feet apart, because they're not gay, but they're. Sharing a can of beans. <laughs> that's just what you do with uh, with your with your dudes. Your homies. Um, yeah, exactly. That's just a can of beans on some stolen land with the homies. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't I don't know I don't know I mean just there's there's just so much just any like name anything about American culture and and it can get tied into this shit. Mm. Um, Very much is representative like. The subtext of homoeroticism, the putting down of women, the the degradation of indigenous people, the uh, weird, like toxic ideas of only expressing yourself through anger and fighting. The ideas that you're an individual and the reason that you are doing fine is because you just happen to be special and you got a lot of grit and you're the best gunslinger around um, and that. You'd rather be alone, but you'll work with others if you have to. It's just, it's very loaded. Um, and once again, I would just have to say, like, this media influenced people in the 50s and the 60s growing up and informed their ideas of both history and of minorities and of women, which is, it's real, it's real disheartening when you think about what they're actually if we were to write out, like, as if we were in a logics uh, philosophy course, what the assertions <laughs> were, it's just baffling, mm-hmm. like very dehumanizing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking during the discussion of like almost like the homoerotic kind of, I don't know, theme that's been transparent into these. I was looking up because for research of this, I was thinking of different western films and one of them that they included was Brokeback Mountain which is um about two men that are trying to repress their feelings for each other but like at points of the film they kind of give into how they feel about each other but it's just really interesting how we see this kind of formation within obviously the 50s, 60s and Ethan's book or Ethan's film within the 80s and then continue on kind of how are we how are these men trying to cope with their feelings and anger and usually this anger is surfaced into something and with Brokeback Mountain it's I hate who I am and I want to be what I am assumed to be which is a cowboy which is strong I want to just like do my work. I want it to be by myself and stuff like that. But you start to see that that kind of facade isn't realistic. And especially in that film, it's very, um, yeah, it's not, it comes at the hindrance of both of the characters um, as well. And I was also thinking throughout this conversation as well, um, Parasite, 
because I know within I know that's it's so random, but I know like within the within this kind of critique I saw of it, they were talking about this like Indian versus cowboy narrative and how why does that fit into a film about South Korean families and their kind of different class systems and it's just like I don't know I don't know if we want to talk about that I don't know if we want to dabble I don't know it's a dribble dab but. Before we get into that, I just like you bringing up um, Brokeback Mountain because it really shows how media and culture uh, exists at meta levels where they recognize the subtext that come through in these old films. And the only way to like process it is through a film that explicitly dives into it. So I find that really interesting, but I have mixed feelings about it because I'm not sure if it ever really, like, if there will ever be a conversation about why those kind of subtexts came through in the original cowboy films and what that meant for the men watching it who earnestly enjoyed those films. Mm. But that's like a whole, like, dissertation about masculinity and cowboy culture, which I bet it exists and would be cool. Uh, but anyways, oh, I'm sure, Parasite. Yeah. You want to uh, give us a little uh, refresher about the Parasite Indian versus cowboy kind of uh, imagery? Oh, yeah. So the wealthy family in Parasite. I'm so sorry. I haven't seen the film in a while, so I don't remember the names. So I'm just going to recall them by wealthy family. <laughs> The wealthy family have a son who's really into um, pretty much in like Indian in the sense of like very vague, very um, uh, appropriated, not really specified what kind of nation or tribe um, it could he's really focusing on. It's just a kind of mosh posh of what he assumes is that and the family is kind of joined not only do they kind of notice it but they also actively participate in it as we see with like the finishing scene or not the finishing scene but the kind of apex of the film of being where they have the wealthy dad is going to be the gunslinger kind of character right oh my goodness my memory is so bad no the son is the gunslinger the dad the son is the gunslinger but however the the working class man the one of the main characters he is he has a headdress on that's obviously not you know appropriate ambiguous as to what but it's still indian and so is the dad and it's interesting because they play out where they're trying to pretend like, oh, these Indians are coming to attack the um, the um, cowboy and the cowboy's going to shoot back and the son's going to be the winner of the day or whatever. And it's fascinating because it's like, at first it's confusing as to why that ties into anything that has to do with Korea and the situation over there. But given the United States and how they see themselves within the context of a global stage, this plays out as in this wealthy family is more proximity close to kind of white American wealthy class, while as the family is farther from it and they will never be able to even like even reach that point, arguably. And you see this kind of stagnation in which both all these characters know who 
who they are. Like the son is going to be wealthy. He's going to stay in his position. He's going to always be the hero, the individual. He gets to be an individual. However, the working class man doesn't get that. And he becomes sequated to not just as a Korean man, but also becomes an Indian man, an indigenous person. So it's very fascinating. I don't know, kind of in the context of Western films that you see this trope follow in in that this is what you betray within your within the United States films is that you betray this as all other people are this way and this people are this way. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think it definitely says, I think you can definitely read that into you, a lot of us foreign policy and kind of us imperialism more broadly with the us, uh, military specifically as the cowboys and then um, the rest of the world, these places that are being that the US military or, or the US economically is going into are like that's that's the frontier and and it's and it's full of these these kind of either dangerous savages or they're the kind of uh, naive ignorant locals that need to be taken care of or or yeah or it's like oh, well we got to be you got to be we got to be firm out here like we're following frontier justice cuz uh, they're not going to play by our rules out here that kind of thing like yeah that's a, yeah you're to- that's totally a huge part of the US foreign policy and how the people view the US interacting with uh, the rest of the world oh yeah and I'm almost wondering also about kind of like the free market and stuff, like (laughs) having the means and the autonomy to uh, direct yourself as you wish and representing the people that you get your wealth off of with both indigenous Americans as well as the working class and making that parallel between the film where the working class are the people that they build the wealth wealth off of for this rich family. And that is kind of analogous to the white settlers building their wealth off of the indigenous communities of America. Um, And I also think it's just fascinating that this completely falsehood of what the American West looks like has become so integrated into the media that it's becoming a mythology that is accepted externally as iconic for America from places that aren't America to where America is conceptualized as cowboy state and that the Wild West is our history and it's how we are today. And I just think it's interesting that just that whole archetype just exist even externally now because it's making me think of like how we incorrectly understand other cultures. It's like that's being done on us, but at the same time, this mythology says so much more about how our our culture actually is that it puts us into this weird like dynamic, if that makes sense. Where it's like, that's not really what happened, but it says a lot about us. Hmm. Oh, definitely. It speaks more to the zeitgeist than it does to the actual events. I totally agree. You want to talk about that? 
the cowboy diplomacy? No, I think the, the I mean, I, I think with the cowboy diplomacy, that was just the idea. Of, I mean, that's just basically what you and I were talking about of um, the Wikipedia definition is it's a term used by critics to describe the resolution of international conflicts through brash risk taking, intimidation, military deployment or a combination of such tactics. I mean, yeah, like I, that's that's like 40 years of U.S. foreign policy right there. So like, I, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Well, guess your government will be glad to see that gold back. And you? You don't want to be here when they get it, huh? You mean the Mexican government on one side, maybe the Americans on the other side, and me right smack in the middle? Uh Uh-uh. Too dangerous. So long. Adios. <laughs> that was amazing. Love oh, this man. cold reading. <laughs> so I know that I know that as a society we've moved past this. So this is an example from the Trump administration. So I know that we've fixed all those problems oh, and yeah. it, um, it was just this isn't relevant as of January twentieth of this year. Mm-hmm. But um, so near the end they released this uh, the seventeen seventy six commission, which was their whole thing about like teaching American values and all of that in schools. And there's a sub there's a subheading called the American Mind, and it says uh, I'll just read a couple uh, the hits from this, and it's Americans yearn for timeless stories and noble heroes that inspire them to be good, brave, diligent, daring, generous, honest, and compassionate. And then it's uh, millions of Americans devour histories of the American Revolution, the Civil War, and thrill to the blah blah. Okay, but then um, it says. Uh, Americans applaud the loyalty, love, and kindness shared by the March sisters and little women, revere the rugged liberty of the cowboys and old westerns, and cheer the adventurous spirit of young Tom Sawyer. These great works have withstood the test of time because they speak to eternal truths and embody the human spirit. Hmm. And so that just, I mean, that to me, it was just like, oh, they're just, they're just saying, they're just saying out loud that unconscious thing. And like, I'm sure a lot of, uh, I'm sure a lot of good, like, liberals now would be like, oh, well, I mean, that's obviously ridiculous. We don't think that. But I think that's still underlying, absolutely, to this idea of Americanism. Like, even people who whose whole thing was like, oh, God, Trump is destroying uh, our republic, and uh, there's still honor in the idea of America. Like, that's you, you still think that. Mm. That stuff I just read, you still think that. Just uh, maybe you don't say it as openly. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's wild about that whole little a blurb you read is that it literally represents the the fantasies and the Jesus Christ there's a word I want to say and I can't find it because my brain's broken it really highlights the celebration of settler colonial myths and legends and it represents the total erasure of the people who were here before people settled uh, and anything positive and good that their culture represented and and the lives and the just the existence and the the arts and the the lives and the just civilizations that they had before settler colonialism that it just completely contributes to that erasure and so it's just saying it in a way that makes it sound majestic and I can't think of the word, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It validates white yeah. supremacy because it pretty much says we inevitably are going to become this. We have characters and we have our hero stories that are like they are who we are at, at the end of the day. This is what human is and who gets to be human. 
white people. So, <laughs> yeah, these are who Americans are. Yeah, and there's this virgin land, and it's it's ours, fair and square, and it's it's on this it's on this rugged landscape that we prove our worth and our and yeah our our true grit. Mm. They should have been able to gun sing as good as we did. <laughs> well, I mean, it's when uh, earlier when I don't remember which of you it was who said it's like it reminds me of the Vietnam War stuff. It's funny because like fucking John Wayne was obviously one of these iconic cowboy actors. But then he was also he also did a couple of uh, fucking Vietnam War movies, basically. And it's just the same character trans transposed into a new context. Same values and uh, attitudes, but yeah. Oh, definitely. oh, for sure. Yeah, like that cowboy, rugged cowboy masculinity archetype was translated into the soldier. Like mm-hmm. the soldier who had his own morals and went in and did what he had to do. And he wasn't culpable for anything. He was just surviving and he was the one that could survive. When his whole troop went down in flames, he made it back to America because he was worthy and strong. And probably something about God. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Because that's part of, because that's a good, good American has, uh, has faith, you know? Yeah, has faith. At the end of the God. day. <laughs> At the end of the day. <laughs> At the end of the day. Like, even if he does some bad stuff, he still believes in, like, morals and justice. And that comes from God uh, in America. Uh, he, Amen. He'd be a little, he'd be a little uh, good, a little bad, <laughs> and he might be a little ugly, but, you know. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, okay. Um, fuck. Well, uh, this has been a super, super pleasant conversation. <laughs> Makes me love this great, beautiful land of ours. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like that. Okay, so were there any other points or sections that you feel like we should cover before landing this plane? We could, there's so much else that we could talk about, but I just, uh, I know that I suggested this cause like with my job hanging out with, um, some like really old people, like they really like this shit. And I was watching, I was just like, this stuff is crazy. We got to mm. talk about this. Just the, and I know that, I mean, I know that there have been a, I, I did a just cursory glance at like various papers like people have done all kinds of cultural criticism on this stuff and like Mm. it's there's obviously a lot to talk about there but it's just um yeah i just i i wanted to talk about this with some other people and just commiserate on how like fucking weird it is do a little yeehaw uh yeah like basically oh so you know how people say yeehaw or yee you don't you know those okay so actually that comes from also Mexican cowboys, because uh, I'm also gonna butcher this, but the uh, gritos, where you go, you know how in the song, like, oh, yeah. like songs gritos. where they go, they go, um, oh, I'm gonna try. I was actually practicing this, practicing yes, this for the podcast. I wasn't, they go, and something like that. Okay, I sound like <laughs> yes. goofy. I'm sorry. But yeah, That's like, good. like those kinds of, <laughs> and then white cowboys couldn't do it, so they were like, yeehaw. <laughs> Yeehaw, cowboy! Yeah, I mean, checks out. Well, I mean, sure. wasn't the wasn't the whole idea of like buckaroo was a like Englishization of vaquero? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Silly, isn't it, isn't it culture how iterative is like super silly? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Like when you 
simply look at where things come from and like (laughs) how it's just a mess of culture and appropriation and legendized versions of things. It's just like, it blows my brains away. And like, basically if you live in the USA and you know, white boomers, you know, someone who grew up loving cowboy shit, it's just iconic. I don't think anyone could, you know, escape it. Like you still see fucking westerns. They're still they're still iconic. I mean, what was it? A Django Unchained. That was a mm. huge one. Just a couple uh, years yeah. ago. That was like that was a western. Or like playing on a lot of those western tropes. A couple years ago, there was some fucking movie that was popular. Yeah, 2015, a movie that was popular uh, called uh, Bone Tomahawk, which is people are like oh it's really well made and uh you read the plot and it's all about these like white guys trying to rescue people from cannibal uh, indigenous folks oh wow and it's like yeah it's, so i mean it's yeah it's still it's still iconic so, i mean it's mostly old people who who like this shit uh, but like it still is so deep in our culture like it's so deeply baked in yeah hmm and, and it's the language of it. Yeah. The um, colloquialisms they were using were really interesting and odd to me. And just like the amount of violence, like I didn't really touch on that, but damn, dude, like these films are like half of just like shooting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I still am baffled about the True writing. American art form. Yeah. Honestly, uh, that's a whole thing in itself. Yeah, I mean, so like A Fistful of Dollars, I didn't talk about it as much because basically when I watched it, I was like, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is obviously like racist settler nonsense, but like it was a fun movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, like the the spaghetti westerns in particular, Sergio Leone, like he was a good filmmaker and that's a whole extra thing because like he's an Italian guy sort of playing on these tropes that come from... Mm -hmm the u.s yeah and and just the levels of uh cultural interaction there are uh crazy to think about mm, that's but, so wild yeah but um, but yeah i mean watching the movie i was like yeah i mean this is yeah this is silly stuff but like clint eastwood's character is really cool mm. and like and i i caught myself just like thinking that like it's it works because of just how i have grown up and like the things that i have been conditioned to respect and um and recognize it was uh yeah it was a very very strange very strange feeling hmm. yeah definitely like those feelings get inculcated super early and i i thought it was interesting that like in the wild bunch um particularly they had a lot of moments that i said earlier where they would just like laugh and i would argue that they created those moments of like false sense of community for the viewer to make them feel like they were in on the joke and in on the cultural acceptance of the ideas of what it meant to be a cowboy and American culture. And so they do these weird things to like involve the watcher indirectly. And I think that also captured the viewer, the the minds and the hearts of the viewers, um, which also instilled a lot of these uh, unspoken implicit ideas of personhood um much to think about Mm -hmm. much to think about yeah well i would argue okay i i think parts of the cowboy and even like i would even say like within like chicano 
subculture, you see people drawn to the cowboy. And not just because of like, not necessarily with this idea of individualism and stuff like that, but it's like, how do we cope with this synchronization of of Mexicanhood and what and what does it mean to become a person who's both indigenous but also Spanish and having to deal with this kind of clashing of cultures? Not only because they're two different cultures, but one is causing genocide against the other one so how do you deal with it and i feel like with that complication the cowboy really manifests that and kind of like okay we have to kind of raise this livestock that wasn't indigenous to this land but we're using kind of our own knowledge of this land in order to kind of work with that and how do we kind of grab grapple with that kind of i don't know history as well so I, I kind of like the cowboy in that sense. And I yeah. like it in certain ways, but it's also, it's complicated, yo. Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting because I do see a lot of like Mexican cowboy culture. Well, mm. before when I was spending more time online. Uh, <laughs> that is kind of interesting to make that assessment of like trying to g- grapple with the two cultures and make it into something that you can live with in good conscience. And it's interesting because even in The Magnificent Seven, one of the characters was supposed to be like half Mexican, half Irish. Mm. And they kind of had like a tiny little bit of a discussion about that, where he did show kind of that confusion about where he exists. And the way that he did that is to be a cowboy and to like live outside of any culture, really. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to make those parallels. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean... The aesthetic of Western films, beautiful. Mm. I love the aesthetic. Looks really cool. Love that oh, fashion. Sure, yeah. And the idea of, like, there is an appreciation of just sort of the North American West and the beauty there. Mm. Like, that's definitely cool. And that's it's cool to see. Super glamorized. Yeah, I would say it would, it would be tied into kind of the manifest destiny and trying to convince people well, yes. to come westward but but it's Mm -hmm. also very pretty i like i like it here i do (laughs) (laughs) shout out to our cowboy states no i'm just kidding uh though i was just beautiful just recently in a suicide prevention training and colorado is number five in suicide rates Mm -hmm. and the um professional who was running the training said that a lot of the quote unquote cowboy states are the ones with the highest rates of suicide because of that rugged individualism, that toxic Mm. masculinity, that inability to process and share those depressive and suicidal thoughts, as well as like issues of access to care and the ease with which someone has access to a lethal weapon which is a gun like Mm. that's not the kind of suicide attempt in which it's you have a high likelihood of surviving so that was just interesting to think about that as a an additional probably unforeseen negative consequence of this Mm. narrative that's interwoven into our our culture Mm -hmm. oh absolutely yeah any uh last thoughts on these very odd films and the rewriting of history uh not good folks (laughs) (laughs) only good cowboys are cowboy bebop love that 
Well, folks, uh, that's our official line here on Invent the Future. Uh, <laughs> if you don't like it, then... No, I'm just kidding. Thank you for listening. I hope that if any of y'all... Uh, end up what y'all if any y'all watched these films <laughs> oh no it's happening <laughs> no we we live in a western society no uh, oh god <laughs> god i would die so quick jesus uh anyways i hope that if any of y'all you know watch any of these films that you'll be able to kind of recognize some of the topics that we discussed and maybe go a little bit deeper into how you see uh history portrayed through a very interesting fan fiction type of lens um and able to you know enjoy some discourse maybe in the discord about other things that you recognize because i'm sure there is a bunch that we didn't get to touch on because it's such a vast and interesting kind of mythology that they've created in this single medium of film which has gone on to inform lifestyles uh, attitudes other forms of media like video games shows uh, audio shows uh so it's it's quite interesting to see how that interacts with our portrayals of history so thank you for listening uh you can find us i don't know what else i'm supposed to say if we're supposed to say find us on the internet catch me outside yeah. <laughs> you can find us online at twitter.com slash proletarian info uh, you can also find us through our email. Go ahead and send us an email over at inventthefuturepodcast at gmail.com. Other than that, I hope you all are staying safe, uh, having a good February, and uh, we'll talk to you next time, luckily. <laughs> or hopefully. <laughs> I can't. Hopefully. Who knows? The future is... Uh... We're trying to invent the future, Ethan. Oh, right. oh, man. That's true. I apologize. <laughs> Okay, bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> I'm so bye. dead. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse through the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse through the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Stock is attached, head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche. I've been in a valley, you ain't been up off that porch now. Nah, can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Riding on a tractor, lean all in my blood. Baby, you can go and ask me. My life is a movie, boy riding in boobies. Cowboy hat from Gucci, Wrangler on my booty. Can't nobody tell me Spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar Baby's got a habit, diamond rings and Fendi sports bras Riding down Rodeo in my Maserati sports car Got no stress, I've been through all